Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Thanks for joining us on the Flyover Country podcast. I'm Scott Jennings, your host. We're glad you're with us. We're talking about uh, politics and American public affairs with a Middle America uh, uh, flavor. And today, it's an honor for me to have on a personal uh, friend and someone I look up to a great deal in the media business, Jake Tapper, who is the Chief Washington Correspondent for CNN and host of The Lead on CNN, which airs every day from four to six o'clock. And that's an honor for me to be on Jake's show from time to time. And Jake, thanks for being with us today. It's great to have you. Let us know next time you're in town. We love having you on. Yeah, I love uh, love stopping by. Now that we can actually do these things in person, yeah. uh, uh, it's a lot more fun being back in the uh, studio. Jake, I wanted to uh, have you on because um, uh, part of the reason I've, I've launched this podcast is I want to have conversations with people like you, uh, hopefully for an audience uh, that I think often is ignored, frankly, by uh, American politics and 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 some media types. And that's sort of just the middle America political audience, the flyover country audience. And I think the disconnect that exists between uh, flyover audiences and the coastal audiences needs to be bridged. And I think uh, people like you can do that, uh, frankly. And having known you over the years and and having been part of your show, I think you're one of the unique voices that can that can help bridge that gap. And and I, I wanted to start with just a sort of a a big but basic question. And I think this is how a lot of people out here, and you know, I'm in Louisville, and this is how a lot of people out in the middle of the country feel right now. And it's essentially this, America's off the rails. And yeah. and um, and I think a lot of liberals on the coast felt that way when Donald Trump was the president. America's off the rails. And so now you have these competing groups of people who just perpetually go back and forth wondering, is America off the rails? And so as you cover our politics, I just sort of wanted to ask you, do you feel like we're off the rails right now compared to what you've known and covered for your career? I mean, compared to what, you know, I mean, I, I, uh, I don't know. I mean, there are, there are parts of our politics that, that feel off the rails right now uh, that feel out of control. If that's what that means, that there's no methodical way that it's proceeding. I don't like it when um, it feels like in Washington, when I feel, when it feels like one, you know, it's, it's, it's a narrow split, right? I mean, the house and the Senate, I don't like it when I feel like the Republicans are in power and they're just ignoring what the Democrats think. And the Democrats are in power and they're just ignoring what the Republicans think. It's not really how the system is supposed to work. It is built to encourage compromise, or at least it was originally. I think there are a lot of things, especially, especially, um, you know, gerrymandering and redistricting that is that has made that difficult. Uh, I think theoretically it would be good if every member of the House and Senate had to, you know, try to appeal to voters from the other party when they run for elections so that they at least can try to hear their concerns. Um, so I never feel like Washington is working the way it needs to, but I, I have I don't know that I've ever felt that it works the way that, that it needs to, because there are all these competing imperatives. I look at Trump's tariff policy or or Biden's uh, Build Back Better bill and think, wow, this is really off the rails. I mean, those are just policy efforts, policy disagreements, this and that. Um, I think there are, you know, a large part of why Donald Trump was not reelected did not actually have to do with his policies. Um, it had to do 
you know, with a couple exceptions, I don't think family separation at the border uh, or how he personally, as opposed to his administration, handled the COVID crisis. But I mean, I think a lot of that had to do with him personally. So, yes, I think it's off the rails, but I, I haven't felt it's ever I don't know. I can't recall a time that it was ever on the rails. You know, I think I think part of the part of what the, the what I mean by the question is when, when you assume something is off the rails or if you believe we're now operating outside of the normal guardrails, it causes you to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Like, I don't know, chase Kirsten Cinema into a bathroom with a camera or it might cause you to, to openly defy a congressional subpoena and right. dare somebody to come at you know so so the things you would normally just say well I'm not going to film somebody in the bathroom or well of course if I get a subpoena I'll reply to it all of a sudden there's a whole new world of possibilities where you don't have to play by any kind of rules at all and you've got a whole group of people cheering you on saying well the other guys don't play by any rules either so we shouldn't we shouldn't partake and I just I'm yeah. I'm a little I'm a little fearful that you've got a whole sort of group of people in the country who think, well, I have to, I have to get up and go to work every day. I have to play by my rules that are set up for my life. But we have all these political actors out there who appear not to have to play by any rules. And I wonder about the effect on our culture where you sort of have a creeping uh, idea that, well, maybe there, aren't, maybe there aren't any rules anymore. Maybe the laws don't apply anymore. Maybe our constitutional guardrails are just not all that relevant to today's American culture. This probably goes beyond politics, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a degree to which people are trying to behave performatively for a very small audience. Um, whether it is, look, I, the protester that followed uh, Senator Cinema into the restroom, I think it's the following into the restroom that is the issue. It's not a protester confronting Senator Cinema in a nonviolent way, but with her issues, what are her, whatever her concerns were. I, I think that that was, a, it was about immigration. I'm not hundred percent sure. So I apologize if I got that wrong, but certainly petitioning the government and freedom of the speech. I mean, my son is in sixth grade and he has a test today on the constitution. And so I've been going over these wonderful uh, rights enshrined in this, in this document and explaining what they mean to a 12 year old this means that you have the right to say whatever you want within reason. You can't libel somebody, but this means that you can petition the government. This means you can assemble. You know, you, you're not allowed to prevent people from protesting. They're allowed to protest. It's in the Constitution. Um, it's in the Bill of Rights. So uh, I don't begrudge people exercising those rights. There is a question of what is performatively actually damaging to your cause if you're trying to achieve something. So let's say that, again, I'm not 100% well-versed on the on this one protester confronting Senator Stenema, but assuming she was talking about immigration, assuming she was talking about the need for, in her view, a more humane immigration policy, assuming she was talking about wanting to have protections for the dreamers, wanting to have protections for undocumented immigrants, whatever it was, that is a legitimate thing to exercise one's free speech, petition, assembly, uh, et cetera. And there's nothing illegal about following somebody into the restroom, but it just like turns off anybody that you're trying to win over. And, and I think that's one of the things that's been lost in the last, it's not just the last five years, but it's certainly been sped up. The idea of, you know, a, a Senator, a Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene 
I don't know who she's trying to appeal to. I assume it is her congressional district and the team MAGA people. And it just, I just cannot fathom having uh, this position as a member of Congress and thinking that your entire job is just to, is to own the lips is just to, I think, to, I think to the the performative issue is to me yeah. uh, is not, you know, we, we, we birthed all these national celebrities. And so if you represent a congressional district like Marjorie Taylor Greene does, you know, she's less concerned about that uh, and more concerned about being a national celebrity for the purpose right. of, of, of uh, consolidating uh, approval and support from people who don't live in her congressional district. And of course they can donate to her and they do, and they have liberally, you know, they've, she's, she's raised a ton of money from around the country from that group. And so we've sort of moved from parochial congressmen who are desperately trying to get the, the, the road built in their district, you know, all the way to sort of people who are, uh, uh, you know, trying to not, they're not many Trumps, but they're, you know, they view themselves as national celebrities yeah. in the same way. did, Frankly. But my, my point is what a waste. Yeah. I mean that, a congressional seat, and everybody should work. I, I, I don't really actually believe this, but, but it would be, it would be very eye-opening if every American had to work for a member of Congress or member of the Senate at some point, because most of the job is not tweeting, not dragging people on social media, not creating, vi- you know, viral moments. Most of the job is tending to the needs of your constituents. They didn't get their social security check. They're trying to get into the military academy. They need help with this. The, the, the opioid crisis is destroying their town, whatever it is. And that's what the job is supposed to be. And um, it is sad when you see members of Congress squander that uh, and think that that's not what the job is. The job is to get on Hannity. The job is to get a friendly tweet from Trump or whatever, whatever the Democratic equivalent is. And although I don't think it's entirely the same thing, because I see people comparing AOC to um, to Marjorie Taylor Greene. And, and to be completely candid, like whatever you think of AOC's politics, I don't think it's fair because she actually does the work. If you follow her on Instagram or or Twitter, you see she's actually out in her district meeting people, et cetera. So but that said, obviously, there are people on the left who are the equivalent trying to get likes and 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 follows I, and it's just, it's such a waste I, it's this is what i think when i see uh other anchors um not at cnn obviously uh taking their show and turning it into a, a, a an hour-long troll fest of of whatever the opposite side is politically and it's just like you can use you can do anything you want with your show you know I, I think there there are similarities in these personalities you mentioned, but there's one key difference. And I, I wanted you to sort of analyze this for me, because I, I really do think that the purpose of political parties heretofore has largely been the same. Well, we're just going to try to win the election and then we'll sort out the policies afterwards. But now I really do think for Republicans, um, you know, the idea that you would win to govern is secondary to the idea that you would I don't know if own the libs is the right term, yeah. but it's certainly it's certainly something more cultural than winning for the purpose of governing. And and we don't we're not organized necessarily around a uh, a platform. I mean, we didn't have a platform last year. 
And so as quaint as, as that sounds, but the Democrats who do have national celebrities, you mentioned one of them, they are organized for the purpose of trying to win to govern. And they are hyper focused on a policy agenda. Right. They, I mean, I hate it. <laughs> you know, it's not something I'm going to be for, but you have to admire it that they actually came to the table with a list of things. Here's the things we want enacted into law. And this is the key difference, I think, right now in the parties. The motivating group in the Democratic Party has its things they want to become law. The, Demo- the Republicans, I'm not, I'm not sure what we want to become law. And I'm not sure on any given day any of the leadership knows either. And so I just, I wonder, though, what you think about that. One party that's sort of post-policy and one party that's all policy right now. I think I don't know that I agree 100 percent because I know that there are there are serious minded uh, legislators uh, on the Republican side. And I'm sure you agree with that. But but there is an overarching look. I don't think the American people know what's in the Build Back Better bill or the infrastructure bill. And that is a communication failure by Democrats. But. um, But they're having a big policy debate. Now, maybe maybe uh, it needs to be more. We need to have a, you know, the public needs to have a better understanding of what exactly is in this bill. And certainly it's important for people in the news media to do our part and and make sure people understand what's going on here, whether or not they agree with it, what the money is going to be spent on, et cetera. You know, should uh, childcare be means tested is an important question, I think. And, you know, you see Democrats having this debate. And so I agree with that. And I don't know. I don't know what Republicans want to do. Do like the, the Republicans very, you know, the likelihood is that they will take back the House uh, next year, just in terms of historical trends. Uh, other than, and we can talk about this, other than eroding the Democratic process, I don't know what McCarthy and Scalise and Stefanik stand for. Um, and, you know, other than attacking Joe Biden, which is fine. It doesn't offend me. I don't care. But like, what do they stand for? And I um, so I mean, in that sense, I I guess I agree. But I do know that there are serious policy people in the House Republican caucus and in the Senate Republican caucus. Your old boss, uh, Mitch McConnell, obviously has a great deal he wants to accomplish. But it, on the other hand, it does seem like his main priority is judges. Right. And that is, as my son and I have been going over in the last week. That is a responsibility of the U.S. Senate. That is only the responsibility of the U.S. Senate to confirm uh, judge nominees. But but what else? What else is there? Like infrastructure, like our infrastructure is crumbling. I mean, this is not Democrat or Republican. You're in Kentucky, so you know this because because there's a lot of infrastructure that needs work in Kentucky and, and in southern Ohio. But like that's just a need. I mean, we can't have bridges that continue to fall. So. I, but I don't hear a lot about that from other than the work on the bipartisan infrastructure bill from Republicans. Yeah, I, well, I think the I think the problem is that, you know, the leader of the party is not he's not personally motivated by a policy agenda. He didn't Dr. have Trump a policy. agenda. Yeah. I mean, he did not. He didn't really run on a on a policy agenda. He got a few things done. And, I, you know, I've been you know, I think he deserves credit for nominating good judges. I think he deserves credit for the tax cuts. But at the, especially as he got to the end of his term, um, he was really more aligned with Schumer and Pelosi, <laughs> you know, and on policy at the end and really sort of unaligned with McConnell and the Republican leadership as it related to the checks and, and other things. And so I think he was, I just think he was lurching from one and grasping and groping for some kind of a policy agenda. That leaves the rest of the Republicans who sort of follow him to wonder, well, 
should I have a platform here? What should I be for? And am I worried it's going to be pulled out from under me tomorrow because the guy running my party changes his mind about it? And I think the Democrats don't really have that problem. In their hearts, they're progressive. They, right, they believe agree. in big government and they want to do a lot with government. I mean, that's that's yeah. honestly, I mean, Joe, Biden, President Biden's hero is FDR. Yeah. So I just think that's totally different motivations for running a party right now. Achieving that's a this really interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I, so, I, I think that's a really interesting point because you're right. Donald Trump remains the leader of the Republican Party and he really wasn't a policy guy. And the truth is, if he had been slightly more of a policy guy, maybe he would have won. If you know, I think one of the things that Schumer thought after Trump won was, look, this guy is, you know, whatever his weaknesses are, he's not a particularly ideological guy in terms of policy. Yeah. He doesn't, he's fairly fungible on a lot of these issues. He wants to win. Um, you know, Trump would famously push back because Paul against Paul Ryan, Speaker Ryan, because Ryan wanted to constrain the federal budget and and Trump just thought it was bad politics. And I am, I, I have to admit, I am amazed that Trump didn't push forward because he could, you know, and the only Nixon can go to China way, he could have gotten the Republican Party to go along with almost, almost anything when it came to spending on infrastructure. He could have pushed a $2 trillion infrastructure bill, which would have caused all sort of economic growth all over the country. And if he had done that, and acted differently with COVID, I think he probably would have been reelected, I think. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of read an analysis the other day. That, I mean, the Republicans were 90,000 votes from, from controlling all three levers. Yeah. And, and now Democrats control all three levers. I mean, the biggest, the biggest issue that he missed on where he could have led the Republicans anywhere was on immigration. And in fact, I think at one point had the Democrats talked into funding his wall. We had a deal for Dreamers. I mean, the whole thing was on the table and he just... He, he just couldn't allow it to happen. It was you really not every Republican to go along with it. That's Trump afraid of his base. He's a, he was afraid of his base. He, he leads his base, but he also fears his base. Um, and there are things that he could have done and could have led the base along. Yeah, sure. You would have lost Ann Coulter, but you would have kept. Yeah. Hannity, you would have gotten two thirds of Fox prime time on your side. Look, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to build the wall and we're going to create a very difficult path to citizenship for the undocumented. And we're going to, you know, and, and that's it. And immigration's done. We're taking this issue off the table for Democrats, you know, and he's at least shake, you know, shaking it up. He could have done that. Ab absolutely. That was a squandered opportunity. But I, I am convinced it was because he was afraid of his base. He was afraid of his base rejecting him. Brad Parscale would say to him, for instance, when uh, I think the FDA outlawed uh, flavored e-cigs uh, during his final year because of all the uh, childhood smoker that childhood smoking that it encouraged, and ultimately he was talked out of it by Parscale, who said, "Your base, you know, loves e-cigs, or they don't they they don't want you to do this, or whatever it is," and he would he wouldn't lead them on issues like that. Uh, I, 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 he knew, I think he always knew how, and I think he knows today how powerful and influential he is, but I don't think when he was the president, he ever fully grasped just how powerful yeah, he I was. Think that's right. I think, I, think, I think I agree with what you're saying. I think he feared these people abandoning him, 
but I don't think he ever understood that they, I don't think they ever would have because the, the coming fight was always going to bring them home. It's, it's us versus them. That was always going to be the reelection campaign. Right. And so even if they were displeased about this, that, or the other, they were, where were they going to go? You know, if you love Donald Trump in 2016, you weren't switching to Joe Biden or in, in 2020. And so, in my opinion, well, some people so I, some people now, did. But, but on a, but on a policy choice, I mean, I, I mean, like if he had decided to fix immigration or build infrastructure, you think people would have switched away? I mean, I don't, I don't. Oh I don't no, think, I don't. No, no, no. Yeah. I, no, they so had nowhere that, to go. That, if they thought, that, no, no, of course, right. If they thought Trump was being too liberal on immigration, there was nowhere to go. Nowhere. Right. Yeah. I mean, and again, there was a deal to be cut. I always feel like this. It, it's so frustrating coming immigra- covering immigration reform, which I've been doing now for decades, because there is a deal to be cut. Just, you know, make the wall impenetrable and then, you know, create some human, human, uh, humane policies for the people who are undocumented and fix the system. But nobody, it's tough work and nobody wants to do it. And it requires you, if you're a legislator in the Senate, it requires you to put to agree to stuff that you hate in order to get the stuff that you want. You're not going to be able to seal the border and make it tougher for undocumented immigrants to get into the country without a more humane policy. If you're a conservative, if for without a more humane policy for those who are in this country, I mean, it just you have to give. And right now, the incentive structure in this country is against compromise, um, because if I mean, look at the difficulty in in Democrats even just agreeing with each other. Do you, let me ask you, I'm gonna, we're going to take a break, but I, before we go to the break, do you, do you think if the election were, if we had a snap election right now, do you think Donald Trump would beat Joe Biden in an election right now? It depends on turnout. If all the people who voted in 2020 voted today, which is a, because these elections are all turnout, so that's a huge hypothetical, I don't know. It, the margins were so narrow in in those states, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Georgia, and Arizona. I don't know. I don't sense, I never sensed a tremendous enthusiasm for Joe Biden. Uh, it was more an exhaustion with uh, Trump. And Trump did make inroads with certain groups. I mean, that's the thing that's so... Mm-hmm crazy about like when he's alleging all this fraud in Philadelphia, my home, my hometown, he did better in Philadelphia in 2020 than he did in 2016. And for a Republican, he didn't do so bad in 2016 compared to Romney or McCain. So he made inroads, not just with white working class voters, but with black working class voters, with Latino working class voters. Um, so I, so just imagining like if he hadn't did what, if he hadn't done what he did with COVID and if he had, pushed infrastructure and immigration reform, I think he would have uh, expanded the tent greatly. But he never understood that it it's not his politics, the 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 politics of addition, right? It's mm-hmm. his his is the politics of us versus them. And that was always the problem. I I've wondered if he is the only Republican that could have actually beaten Hillary. I, I I look at how he won. He obviously didn't win the popular vote, but the way he won the election, and in some ways they needed each other, you know, yeah. He was the only one, that, you know. You know what I mean? Those they were perfectly suited for. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not know if another Republican would have beaten her or not. I really. <laughs> I wonder about this. I don't know. I don't think Biden was any super strong candidate. I just think he yeah. had a 
he offered a comfortable place for suburban voters to go. And, and, and where and where are they now? I mean, I, there's a lot of evidence that maybe they maybe they're having buyers. Yeah, and, and I don't know how they would vote today, but I don't yeah. sense. I mean, he's off Twitter and he's not. So you don't see the, you know, unless you're watching One America News, I don't know that you're seeing his rallies. So maybe the things he did that so offended the suburban voters that ultimately delivered Pennsylvania to Biden, maybe they're out of mind. I mean, the American people have a pretty short memory. Um, I don't but I don't know if there was snap election. I don't. It's an interesting question. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break. When I come back, we're going to ask Jake Tapper about moderating debates, which uh, is fascinating to me. Thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. Do not leave vehicles unattended. Yes, even you. Thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. And our guest today is Jake Tapper from CNN, host of The Lead from four to six every day. And Jake, thanks for spending time with us. Um, you for the, have for the you record, I, I, I have flown to louisville i have flown i've i mean i'm sure i'm sure i've flown over it too but i've also flown to Kentucky. yeah good good i'm, I'm glad you were here once okay <laughs> i um have been an admirer of your ability to moderate debates you did one in 2016 primary you did i think this is like very very obscure but i think one of the best debates we ever had on CNN was the 2018 Florida governor oh, contest between DeSantis and Gillum. Sorry. I'd done the yeah, Rick and, Scott Christ one four years before. Right. I thought both of them were, I thought they were both great for what they were trying to accomplish. I thought you were great. And so I wanted to ask you, um, how do you, how much time do you spend preparing for these things and, and what's your process to go through with it? And then, you know, it's obviously different when you've got one-on-one versus 20 people on a stage, but I was sort of curious to know if you could give us some insights on how do you prepare for it and what are you trying to get out of it? Well, the CNN, um, the CNN team is amazing. And uh, there is no other team with whom I'd rather prepare for a debate. I mean, we do mock debates and it's, you know, some of the smartest producers in the world pretending to be candidates just to prepare you for what they might say. And this is, um, we do this over and over for these debates, whether it's, you know, 11 candidates on stage or just two. I, I, I do prefer two. It is much easier uh, and it's a better debate. Um, that Simi Valley debate uh, at the Reagan Library in 2015, where we had 11 candidates on stage, it was a three-hour debate, and and you know, which is trying to give a lot of time, but it's ultimately just a huge competition for for time. And you want you try to, I'm just trying to involve everybody and get as many answers as possible, and have people confront each other on their differences. So that's the goal. Um, one of the most challenging parts of moderating a debate is managing the time mm-hmm. because every politician wants to go over, well, except for, except for Joe Biden, every politician wants to go over their time limit. You might remember in 2019 and 2020, Biden would like stop like 10 seconds early. I don't, it was very, <laughs> I think he had yeah. people got inside his brain so much and said, you know, you talk too much, you're too garrulous, yeah. you, that you're too loquacious that ultimately he started like nipping himself in the bud 15 seconds earlier than before he had to anyway. um, So yeah, the goal is just to try to get them to confront each other on policy issues and 
have people understand the differences. And the, the biggest challenge is managing the time. Um, I remember at the Detroit debate we did with a bunch of Democratic candidates. It was me, um, Dana Bash and Don Lemon. And, you know, I am I am kind of tough on the time. Like they're, when they're out of time, I'll say, thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator. And, you know, some I see the tweets afterwards. People don't like it. But at the same time, the, the choice is let them go on, in which case you don't ultimately ask the question about, I don't know, education or nuclear power or whatever that you want to get to. And then you get accused of letting some people talk too long and other people. I mean, it's a no win situation. And for me, I think that, you know, cutting them off uh, or giving them a warning that they need to stop is is the is the best way to do it. Although sometimes uh, people don't like it. Do you, do you often hear from the candidates or the campaigns after the debate saying, man, that really sucked. You screwed me or you did it. You played it fair. or Did, you, did they just move on? Um, Generally speaking, people are are pretty nice. Uh, I will say, without naming names, that after the Reagan Library debate, which you might remember, like Donald Trump at that point, this was August or September, and he was number one in the polls. He had been number one in the polls since July. And the people who are ahead in the polls tend to get more time than the people who are not. That doesn't mean that yeah. the you know that that people don't get an opportunity. They do. But that said, um, you know, the generally speaking, the bigger candidates in terms of support get get more time. It's not like equal throughout like 10 candidates. You know, it will be by the end of the night, like generally speaking, the amount of time they get reflects um, their standing in the polls, too. So uh, I will say that after the Simi Valley debate, uh, I heard from a few uh republicans who uh objected to us treating donald trump as if he was the front runner which he was and they <laughs> he did was not, the front runner they yeah. did not like it and a lot of them ultimately became uh trump's biggest sycophants without even you know like the most shameless sycophants um <laughs> and i would ever i would never reveal their identities or release yeah. their emails about the nasty things they had they had had to say about Trump when we just treated him like the front runner he was, but boy, that was those were some U turns we saw. Yeah, I, I remember being told by a number of people, "I'll never work for that guy. I'll never work for that guy." Well, some people two weeks did. later, <laughs> but a lot of people did. Honestly, like it is almost pathological that some of the most public people who opposed him in the primaries became some of the most public shameless factotums uh, and just, just, you know, ultimately removed their spines and other organs that suggest uh, courage and, uh, and signed up. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about your books uh, because you've been uh, writing books and, um, uh, people seem to like them, and uh, it seem like you're you're enjoying that. Uh, you were a print journalist. Uh, you went to TV, and just sort of curious to know why did you ultimately decide to start writing again? What caused you to choose, you know, fictional books with sort of a historical uh, underpinning? And uh, you, I think you just signed to, to write a couple of more, right? 
Well, the 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 book that that means the most to me is a is a nonfiction book I wrote that came out about nine years ago called The Outpost about uh, Afghanistan, about a, 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 and that's a true story. And um, I would I would write another uh, nonfiction book, but it would have to be about a subject I really really care about and want to tell. I was offered some serious money to write a Trump book, but ultimately. I didn't want to do that. And I knew there were lots of Trump books coming out by lots of excellent reporters. And I, I just didn't want to look backward. And, it, and that wouldn't be the same thing as telling the, you know, heroic tale of soldiers in combat. Um, I started writing fiction because it was kind of fun. That's all. It was just a fun project and a fun challenge. I'm a history buff. So combining real stories with fake stories uh, is fun. And that's, that's really all it is. It's enjoyable to me. Uh, if people stop buying them, then I'll stop writing them. But as long as they let me do it, I, I, it's fun to do. The Outpost was made into a movie. Uh, yeah. did, how, how involved were you behind the camera? I mean, I, obviously you wrote the material, but were you there on set every day? I mean, how, how did you go about the movie making process? So um, Rod Lurie directed it and a couple guys named um, Paul Tamasey and Eric Johnson wrote the script. I was an executive producer of the project, so I looked at the script during different iterations. I kind of served as a representative of the film project to a lot of the soldiers and families who actually served there so that they knew what was going on, that we had a private Facebook group and I would like share what was going on and if people had concerns uh, or issues, I would talk to them about it. I put some of the soldiers that actually served at Combat Outpost Keating, in touch with the director, Rod, mm -hmm. and a few of them were in the film or contributed to the film in various ways. One guy, Dan Rodriguez, played himself. I visited the set. It wasn't necessary. They didn't need me, but uh, it was in my contract that I got to do it. Um, so my family and I went to Bulgaria, which doubled as Afghanistan, and we went there and uh, met some of the actors and saw some of the shooting, and it was it was cool. Basically, I just wanted to make sure that the film was as close to true as it could be. And Rod Lurie, the director, uh, is a West Point grad, and he, he very much cared about that. The biggest um, literary license that was taken in the film was some of the people from 2006 and some of the people who... The, 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 the story is basically, the movie is basically just about the, the attack in 2009, this overwhelming attack of mm -hmm. uh, three or 400 insurgents against 53 American soldiers in this outpost at the bottom of three steep mountains. But the outpost, my book is about all four years of the outpost, why they built it, what they did while they were there, what they accomplished, and then this big battle. And so the biggest literary license that Rod Lurie took was he, he took one of the characters from 2006 and one of the characters from 2008 and he put them in the unit so um as to tell their stories too but generally it was pretty true to what happened and when we showed the film to survivors and gold star families in 2019 before it came out um we went i was very nervous and we went around afterwards and they all felt the the families of the fallen and others felt good about the project. They thought it was pretty faithful to what really happened. And, and you, are you have one in process right now or you're about to start writing another one? I just started uh, writing a third novel. Yeah. I, 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 the process I usually go through is I 
I'm, you know, I just think about it, what I want to do. And then I work on an outline for months and then, uh, I show the outline to the editor and, uh, and then I start writing. And so I've, I started about, I'm almost done with chapter two. So that's where I am. All right. Uh, we are close to the end of the show, but before you go, you have to participate in the famous lightning round. So, okay. uh, short, short answers or one, one answer, uh, one word answers only. Number one, will Donald Trump be the Republican nominee in 2024? Um, yes. Favorite movie. Oh, favorite movie. Uh, Goodfellas. Most memorable thing that ever happened to you live on the air. Most memorable thing that ever happened to me live on the air. Um, Stephen Miller having a little temper tantrum of some sort. I don't know exactly what you would call it, but that was pretty memorable. I don't know. Can you think of a better example? I'm looking at it. <laughs> Oh, maybe the one where the guy from uh, the guy that spoke for the Roy Moore campaign thought that it was the law that you had to be sworn into office on a Christian Bible. And I explained oh, to him that it wasn't. You didn't actually have to be sworn in on anything. You could be sworn <laughs> in on a mug. And his <laughs> face went. So he, there was like a moment of brain freeze that I thought the satellite had broken. And like it was just like, but um, anyway, that might, maybe that was the most memorable. That's the one I hear from. The, I still hear about years later uh, interesting it was yeah. it was almost like an snl skit all right it's been in the news lately you may this may have changed your opinion who broke up the beatles john or paul i don't know why this is controversial john broke up the i mean it, it's always been john john broke i mean but i never thought anything i guess you know i was a beatles fan as a kid so i always knew that john broke up the beatles and i don't understand why this is controversial this is just a fact it's by the way that's I mean, that's his right. He doesn't, you know, there's no law saying he has to play for the Beatles. It's too bad he didn't. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, maybe there should be, maybe there should be one, but there wasn't one. Oh, you know, I've never been to a Texas State Fair, so I would, I would go to Texas just because I've been to the Iowa State Fair a million times. So that's why. You've been stranded on a desert island for the rest of your life, and you can choose but one companion. It will be A, Wolf Blitzer, or B, Anderson Cooper. Well, Anderson's younger, so you got to go with the younger guy, right? And Anderson's like really, you know, he would, he's very strong. He's very fit. I mean, I could probably make him build the lean to and everything. That's not to say that I wouldn't love having Wolf there as well, but, um, you're going to hear about it today when you hand off the show, it's going to be, well, I just don't right. know how long I'm going to be on this desert Island. <laughs> I would expect Wolf to pick Anderson too. Let me say that. And I'm younger than Anderson. So let me put it that way. All right. It's, it's okay to pick Anderson. <laughs> uh, you got to grab a soft drink out of the fridge. What is it? What's the, I don't drink soda really. Do I have to drink? I mean, I drink water. I gave it up. I went to club soda this year. Uh, yeah, well, you're going to grab a book off the shelf. It's the soda that, that probably is the way that you lost all that weight, right? It's bad for you. It's bad for you. Uh, you grab a book off the shelf. Fiction or nonfiction? Fiction. Fiction. Biggie or Tupac? Oh, I mean, I got, I guess, I guess, um, well, I like them both, really. Um, t- uh, Tupac, I guess. See, the thing, about, the thing about this show is there's only certain things in the middle of roads, Jake Tepper, and that's dead squirrels and yellow lines. And so you really have to. <laughs> well, I, mean, you know, I am professionally as agnostic as I can about many, many things. Like I don't have a position on the Build Back Better bill. And 
you know, I, I listened to both Biggie and Tupac, but I, I guess ultimately, ultimately, I guess I like Tupac better. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right. You come to, you've made an, a return visit to Kentucky. You picked a bourbon at the bar, which is it? Say that again. You've come to Kentucky. You've made a return visit. You've ordered a bourbon at the bar. Oh, which brand kind of, is it? What kind, of, what kind of bourbon is it? Um, it's a really good question. I mean, if I'm just like, if I'm just walking into a bar, I would probably, I don't know, Woodford, Woodford Reserve. Yeah, Woodford Reserve. That's a good choice. All right, final one. Is there someone out there that you've never had on the show, you've never interviewed, but you've dreamed of interviewing them, and you can plead for them to come on right now? Um, I would love to have the Pope come on. I, I think he'd be a fascinating interview. We've tried to get him. He's he's not an easy get. Um, so that would that would be good. I mean, I've interviewed both Trump and Biden. So, I mean, I would take either one of them, but but I, I haven't done the Pope. So I guess the Pope. The Pope. All right, Jake Tapper. You're a good sport for the lightning round. Thank you for being here. And thanks, thanks everyone Scott. for listening. Yeah, I appreciate you being with me. And thanks everyone for listening to the Flyover Country podcast. Join us again in the future for more exciting guests. Jake, terrific job. Appreciate it, man. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help.